I'm David Torsivia. I'm Daniel Forkner. And this is Ashes, Ashes, a show about systemic issues, cracks in civilization, collapse of the environment, and if we're unlucky, the end of the world. But if we learn from all of this, maybe we can stop that. The world might be broken, but it doesn't have to be. With the right equipment, the image could be enlarged and sharpened. What's that? This an enhancement program. Can you clear that up any? I don't know. Let's enhance it. Enhance section two. Enhance this. Uh, <laughs> we all are very familiar with the constant enhancements, DNA tests, super technology, and other tech-based crime fighting that occurs in our media all the time. But what's the basis for all this? What does it all ultimately come out from? And that, of course, is forensic science. The world of forensic science as it actually exists in our judicial system is very different from the technical wizardry of what we find in our media. The actual field is dirty, messy, and filled with mistakes. And those dirty methods that are filled with mistakes, well, they lead to convictions. People are sent to jail on faulty evidence and faulty methods that purport to be scientific. But that shouldn't really be that surprising once we examine the whole purpose of forensic science in the first place. Because it hasn't actually evolved out of the scientific method, which you would expect from something that claims to be science, but rather it has been molded to fit a need, convictions. We talk about a lot of topics on the show that we find very important to all of us here on Earth. But for some reason, this one really stands out to me as maybe one of the most important things we discussed so far. And in terms of numbers, maybe this won't affect as many people as climate change or the fashion industry, as we talked about last week. But in terms of individual lives destroyed, of names attached to these lives destroyed, well, this one hits really close to home. And the stories that happen and the reasons why, well, they're heartbreaking. Since the late 80s in the United States, there have been hundreds of convictions that were overturned and exonerated because of DNA evidence. And in more than 50% of these exonerations, Bad forensic science was the reason for the conviction in the first place. The United States judicial system has without a doubt killed innocent people because of this bad forensic science. There are without a doubt thousands, tens of thousands, maybe even more of innocent people in jail right now or with criminal convictions on their record for crimes they did not commit because of this broken science. Maybe we're getting ahead of ourselves like we tend to do and should step back and start looking first at the science of this field and why it's so broken in the first place. So what is forensic science, David? Well, if you've ever watched CSI or NCIS... It's a lot of blue UV lights looking for semen, I think. Well, that's certainly part of it. And you get the sense that it's done by scientists in white lab coats with lots of good scientific tools and methods. And sometimes they wear rollerblades. I haven't seen that show, David. It's NCIS, the most popular crime forensic show there is. Well, there you go, folks. But what forensic science is, basically, it's the practice of subjective pattern matching. Whether it's bite mark analysis, hair, shoe treads, fingerprints, or firearms, what you have is a person, a quote-unquote expert, who examines two pictures and determines if they look similar enough to be a match, with no scientific criteria or standards to inform this expert decision. It basically boils down to pure subjective speculation. And before you start jumping against us and saying, wait, Fingerprint science is hundreds of years old. We know it works. I've seen Dexter, the blood splatter analysis. That was definitely a thing. Well, it's not just us that are saying this. And in fact, the FBI, the President's Council of Advisors on Science and Technology, 
And many other researchers and law enforcement agents have come together to say, you know what, this science isn't that good. And in fact, a lot of it, it just isn't science at all. Well, in the president's council that wrote that report, David, that was in 2016. And as we'll talk about later in the show, the first nationwide review of the crime labs in this country, in the United States, was actually carried out in the 1970s. The first and only, Daniel. That's right. We haven't had one since. But it found in the 70s that over 50% of all crime labs couldn't match paint samples and close to three quarters made errors in blood sample tests. But we're going to get to that, specifically crime labs and the standards and the procedures that they employ. And we'll ask the question, has anything changed? But before we get to that, let's talk about what are some of these methods that are being used in forensic science to put people in jail. So the President's Council of Advisors on Science and Technology wrote that review of forensic science for the president in 2016. And they talk about a host of forensic science methodologies. Let's just start with the first one, bite mark analysis, which they conclude does not meet the scientific standard for foundational validity and is far from meeting such standards. In fact, quote, to the contrary, available scientific evidence strongly suggests that examiners cannot consistently agree on whether an injury is a human bite mark and they cannot identify the source of a bite mark with reasonable accuracy, end quote. You know it's bad when somebody can't even tell if a bite mark is human or not. Yeah, and this kind of gets us into this concept that these methods are not really scientific to begin with. For one, a lot of them rest on assumptions and premises that have never been proven. In the case of bite mark analysis, those premises are that human teeth impressions are unique identifiers and that we each have our own that is completely distinguishable from any other human. And the second assumption that this whole field rests on is that you can actually detect these dental impressions on human skin. Of course, none of these assumptions have ever been proven. And similar to bite marks, also looking at impressions is, of course, shoe tread matching. And maybe this is something more in the realm of Scooby-Doo episodes. But Those damn kids, David. It's always the damn kids. Yeah, I don't know. When I think of shoe tread matching, I always think of, of Scooby-Doo, people walking and they're like, oh, it matches up. It's a size 10, whatever. But Isn't it kind of funny, though, that when they're following the shoe treads, they have to use a magnifying glass? Yeah. Well, it's a size 10 shoe, but you can't see it. Well, without a- even then in this, like, this cartoon, they're portraying this as some sort of science. Like, let me whip out the magnifying glass, look at this, and... And I guess that carried over to the forensics field as well. They said, well, you know, it should be obvious if you step on the ground with a shoe, it's going to be a mark. We can match it to another shoe. Well, it turns out that this is also totally bunk. That same report concluded that pattern matching shoe treads with marks left at crime scene and drawn conclusions from that are, quote, unsupported by any meaningful evidence or estimates of their accuracy and thus are not scientifically valid. So we've got two things so far that are totally useless but are mainstays of forensic science. David, there's one method in forensic science that was pulled out in the Casey Anthony case that that got a lot of press attention a few years ago. It wasn't mentioned in this report, and I won't mention it here, but you just got to know it's it's pretty crazy, and I can't wait for us to get to it. Well, with with that tease, let's keep going. Uh, (laughs) It's not just uh, impressions, but also something that I even remember learning this. I took a criminology or crime course in my high school, and one of the things we looked at under microscopes and stuff was hair, hair science. Well, it turns out this is also pretty bad. So hair analysis is a perfect example of how flawed these pattern matching techniques are. When an examiner wants to determine if a piece of hair matches another piece of hair, there's generally two 
broad categories under which they're going to try and identify characteristics. First, you can do this with just the naked eye. They have characteristics like how long is it? What color is it to the naked eye? Is it curly? Is it kind of straight or wavy? What are the general properties? And they're going to write these down for each sample. And then they're going to take this and they're going to put it under the microscope. So this is the microscopic similarity. And they're going to measure the size, the diameter at certain parts of the fiber. They're going to look at the distribution of pigmentation. And they're also going to try and judge, hey, is this a human hair? Is this an animal hair? Where does it come from? Does it come from the head? Does it come from the pubic areas? Is it from a white person? Is it from a black person? How did it fall off the body? Was it cut off? Was it yanked off? So, I mean, it just sounds like they're listing everything they can possibly observe about a hair and hoping that enough of these are enough to match, right? Exactly. But the problem is, as you can kind of guess, this is, first of all, a subjective list of characteristics. You know, I don't know if the term wavy falls under a scientific definition or not, but what definitely does not fall under any scientific criteria is how many characteristics do you need to say that something is a definitive match? Some experts will tell you that they look for six or seven. Some will tell you that they require between 20 and 30 characteristics to match before they will make the decision that it's a match. But when you look at some of the actual cases in which people have been convicted based on hair analysis, you'll find that sometimes it can be as little as three. There was one case in which a man was convicted for quote-unquote irrefutable matching hair evidence And there were only three characteristics to describe the match which landed this man in jail. And that was this, black hair from the head from an African-American. Sounds pretty definitive, Daniel. I mean, that's definitely enough for conviction, right? But I've got one that is even better than that, okay? All right. So in one review of a case in which a 17-year-old man spent 28 years in prison for a crime, it turns out eventually that he didn't commit. A case in which he had an alibi for the trial, but was convicted anyway because of this microscopic hair analysis. Well, in this review, which was kicked off by scandal at the FBI's hair analysis unit, two FBI experts could not tell the difference between human hair and dog hair. And this is 28 years later. If they can't tell the difference now, well, they sure as hell couldn't do it then. And this guy, again, he spent 28 years in jail because these supposed experts literally couldn't tell the difference between human hair and dog hair, much less whose hair this is. Well, to be honest, David, the FBI has never been good at hair analysis. Researchers acknowledged in 1974 that these visual comparisons between different fibers are so subjective, you can't possibly come to a definitive conclusion about the identity of these things. And the FBI itself admitted in 1984 that this method could not possibly be used to determine if an individual had been at a crime scene or if hair found at a crime scene even belongs to a particular individual. And in 2002, when the FBI looked at some past cases, about 80 different cases in which hair was used, well, when they ran a DNA test, they found that 11% of the time, two hairs could be microscopically similar, but come from different people. And of course, this is all couched in ridiculous statements that these FBI experts would give in testimonies saying like, well, there's only a one in 10 million chance that this hair came from someone else, which are just totally made up numbers, not based on any sort of scientific validity, but ended up in convictions and people locked up for decades and possibly even sent to death row. 
All right, we're going to talk about how these experts influence these cases with their testimony, but let's move on to another methodology, and that's fingerprint analysis. One of the most common, it's the one that everyone knows. Yeah, hold up one second, Daniel here. I mean, I've always heard that my fingerprints are like snowflakes. They're unique and individual only to me, and even among my fingers, I can look at them and they're all different than each other. So clearly, there must be something here that my fingerprints are mine, and, and they should be a good tool of identification. But you're telling me this is also in the report? Yeah, David. I'm shocked. Well, look, examiners, analysts, and experts across the board have all been taught that you can match a partial fingerprint or a whole fingerprint to an individual with 100% accuracy and certainty. It's been embedded in the very mindset of of people in the criminal justice system. And well not just that, but also in like I remember being told this in elementary school. You did the like little class thing where we put our fingerprints on stuff and we like sprinkle with dust and pull off on tape and we'd like, oh look, I've got a whirl and this one's a swirl and, and this is a double arch or whatever the hell it is. That's like a basic grade school education. They've they've been telling us this is true. And yet there's not any scientific reason for believing that two people cannot have the same or similar fingerprint. And it turns out that just like hair analysis, fingerprint standards are completely random, they're made up, and they're left to the subjective opinion of a particular analyst. Literally, David, the examiner just connects the dots between two prints and eventually says, well, looks similar to me, it's a match. The investigative show Frontline interviewed a fingerprint examiner with 40 years of experience involving over 17,000 prints. And when asked how he decides a match, the examiner says, quote, I make a leap of faith based on my experience, end quote. And this is the part that really surprised me because just like in our fashion episode, I always assumed that our t-shirts and our other simple textiles were just printed by some 3D printers or the manufacturer was automated. In the same vein, I assumed that fingerprints were matched by computers, but it turns out they're not. And I guess someone might say, Well, okay, maybe it's not a perfect science, but this guy has 40 years of experience. That has to count for something, right? Well, there's something not right about judging expertise and good judgment off experience alone. In fact, it's baseless, especially when that experience itself has never been held accountable and has never been verified. In the same vein, defenders of the system will say, well, the few cases in which we've got it wrong are unfairly shadowing the vast majority of cases we got it right. But then again, well, how do we know they got it right in the first case? It boils down to circular reasoning that says, look at all the convictions we got, you're welcome. And we got these convictions through the fingerprint method, and we know that this method works because look at all the convictions we got. It's very easy to see the problem right there. And you might be asking yourself, well, what is the error rate here? It must be infinitesimally small. There's only a couple of cases as effects out of the millions of criminal cases that are tried each year. But in fact, it's a lot higher than you would expect. And that same report that they wrote for the president's office found that fingerprint matching is a 1 in 18 error rate. That's bad. When you multiply that by the thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of cases going on all the time, that adds up. And it's easy to see why. Because when there's a human involved making a subjective experience that has no scientific standards, well, biases come into play. And in fact, a study done in 2006 tried to measure just that, the level of bias in some of these decisions. So what they did is they identified a group of examiners who had done fingerprint analysis in the past. And they presented the exact same cases to these examiners without telling them that it's cases that they've seen before. But this time they included some biasing statements 
within the cases, such as, oh, this person was arrested for this crime, or this person is suspected of having done this. And when they introduced these biasing statements, well, on average, these examiners reversed their earlier decisions about a fingerprint match 16.6% of the time, which means not only do you have a lack of standards within the field, you have a lack of consistency from one individual examiner across his or her career. And this has real-world effects. In 2004, a bomb went off in Madrid, Spain, killing over 100 people and injuring almost 2,000. Fingerprints found on the detonator were traced to an attorney in Portland, Oregon. The FBI trailed him and eventually arrested him, despite the fact that he'd never been to Spain, despite the fact that the Spanish government didn't think this attorney could possibly be a suspect. Well, the FBI nevertheless decided to pursue him based solely on this single fingerprint match. And it was a strong match, a total of four examiners, including an independent analysis, that same one that made that leap of faith comment, all concluded that it was a match. Of course, it wasn't. Part of the reason is because it was a partial sample, and these examiners were doing the best they could, but they no doubt felt the pressure to get it right because prosecutors and FBI officials expected a match. That's what they were looking for. And we'll talk about the relationship between authorities and these examiners doing the work for them that leads to convictions in a little bit. And of course, with all these problems here, the report just said, well, we can't trust hair evidence. We can't trust splatter or shoe prints. But they did say fingerprint. It is based on something that is useful. But we need to get rid of this human subjectivity out of it. And we hope that in the future, machine learning will do that for us. But as we talked about in the past, machine learning itself brings up questions. What goes into it? Why does it saying it's a match? Why isn't it? And what biases are programmed into the code itself? That we can write away as saying, well, it's the code rather than whatever input that we trained it on. But the real reason why machine learning in fingerprint matching probably won't take off is because it's going to introduce an error percentage. It'll say this match has a 70% or a 30% or 40% chance of being identical. And when I'm a prosecutor in the court, I don't want to say that. I only need a 100% match because of things like CSI, the expectation of forensics, which we'll talk about later on in the episode. Well, that's what the jury expects. A fingerprint match needs to be just that, a perfect match. And many times we introduce figures saying that this is an expected match, that it could be something else. Well, that introduced doubt, a reasonable doubt, and that's not going to fly in the court. And that's why we'll probably continue to trust the testimony of examiners who are willing to make that leap of faith. But of course, all forensic science these days comes down to that magic three letters, D N. The woman without a face was a criminal mastermind that had gotten away with six murders, possibly more, and a series of burglaries throughout Europe that detectives in the EU finally brought to justice after 15 years of search. Her crimes ranged from strangling an elderly woman with wire in her home in 1993 to shooting a policewoman in her car in cold-blooded murder in 2007. In 2009, this woman was so notorious that authorities placed a 3 million euro bounty on her head. Police all over the continent were hot on the trail of this woman that left DNA evidence at over 40 crime scenes. And when they finally identified her, police spokesman Joseph Schneider admitted, this is a very embarrassing story. And why was it embarrassing? Well, because it turns out the woman had been hiding in plain sight the whole time. She had been clocking in regularly to a German medical company factory where she worked on making cotton swabs. Coincidentally, 
these were the same cotton swabs used by police in detective work. And the fact that she committed these murders while maintaining a steady day job was one of the more perplexing. <laughs> well, uh, I, I think you might have missed the point there, Daniel. What do you mean, David? Uh, oh, well, I don't know if she was this nice old Polish woman was was living a side of crime while also making cotton swabs all day. Well, no, that's why it was so embarrassing, because she was there in the factory in plain sight. Uh, police could have found her. I mean, I mean, that's one theory, but I think what the one that the police eventually realized was that, oh, she just kind of got the cotton swabs a little dirty in that factory. Uh, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> and yes, that's right. Authorities first suspected that it was their tools that were contaminated, not the crime scenes. When a sample taken from a live man... That is somebody who they had in custody. Well, it produced this phantom woman's DNA. Okay, yeah, that actually makes a lot more sense because I have here in my notes something about transfer and contamination when it comes to DNA and how sometimes we can't even trust the very method that we have the most faith in. And to get a sense of how this transfer, how DNA can contaminate crime scenes and lead to wrongful convictions and confuse authorities, let's look at the case of Lucas Anderson. In 2012, a homeless man was arrested by police for breaking into the mansion of a rich Silicon Valley entrepreneur and murdering the owner while ransacking the place. The reason police knew our suspect, Lucas Anderson, was involved was because his DNA was discovered under the dead man's fingernails. Case closed, right? Except that it wasn't. At least not yet. You see, detectives may have known he did it, but to come up with an explanation, they had to search for connections between Lucas the other two men involved in the crime, and anything else that related to the scene. Well, the main detective knew he finally had a shut case when he made the following connection. Long before the murder slash break-in, about a year ago actually, Lucas had spent time in jail with a man who was friends with one of the other men involved in the crime. Well, before the crime occurred, that man, the friend of the other man that may have been involved in the crime, well, that man had driven to the city of San Jose, which is close to where our suspect, Lucas Anderson, lived as a homeless man. Now, case closed. Well, not quite, Daniel. I think you need to look at your notes a little bit more. Because in this case, Lucas had a really good defense attorney, fortunately for him. And because he faced the death penalty, his attorney got all his medical records together in case they could get some mercy on the charge. And that's when she discovered that on the night of the murder, Lucas had been in the hospital blackout drunk. And the long story short of this is that our suspect walked free after the connection was made that the paramedics that had picked him up and delivered him to the hospital then responded to the murder call and likely brought Lucas's DNA with them. Well, how could that be, you might ask? How could the DNA of two men who've never met, touched each other, or come in contact with each other, or even really hung out in the same places, end up on each other and end up almost convicting somebody for the crime of murdering that one man? Well, it turns out that we shed DNA constantly. Over the course of our day, we shed millions and millions of skin cells that are covered in our DNA and leave them all throughout our environment. And not just our environment, but across everything we touch, every place we walk, the handle on the subway, a bathroom door, anything that we come in contact to carries a little bit of our DNA with it. Let me illustrate this for you. So some researchers who started looking into this idea, this idea of DNA transfer, which is a phrase that's really important that we're going to talk about a lot here. Well, they looked into it and said, how does this happen? How much does this happen? And let's get a better understanding of what it is so that we can better tackle it when it comes to these sort of cases. So an Australian scientist got together a group of participants and he set them around a table and shared a jug of juice between them. 
He let them sit and chat for 20 minutes, uh, just drinking their juice, and, and they swabbed everything in this room. They swabbed the hands, the chairs they were sitting at, the table, the jug, and the juice glasses itself. Each of them had touched the jug of juice at least once, but that's about it when it came to direct contact with a shared similar object. The volunteers never touched each other, but one third wound up with another's DNA on their palm. A third of the glasses bore DNA of volunteers who did not touch or drink from them. And there was foreign DNA, DNA that didn't even match any of the participants in this study, on half of the chairs, the glasses, and all over the participants' hands and the table. So where'd it come from? Well, the answer, of course, is all over the place. The people they had woken up with, the people who came in contact with them on the way to this study, the researchers themselves as they greeted them, let them in. And this trail of strangers ends up being a lot more DNA than what the participants themselves actually leave on, making on their hands, for example, 75% of the DNA found didn't match any of the participants in this study. It's very obvious how this can quickly introduce problems for forensics. It's a problem because as our tools have gotten better, as our techniques for discovering DNA have become more precise and more accurate, well, it turns out DNA is everywhere. In a 2016 study, 75% of all crime scene tools used by detectives was found to be contaminated with DNA. And DNA has even been discovered all over crime labs that are supposed to be clean and free of contamination. But even things that you think you can trust, like bodily fluids, these things that very clearly indicate through DNA analysis as coming from a particular person, well, even these can have misleading implications. So David, let me ask you a question real quick. You turn on the TV and the reporter is discussing a popular case that's been in the news and it involves a little girl. She was raped and murdered and her body was dumped in the woods somewhere. It's a tragedy that the whole nation is following, has been following for a couple of weeks. And now the news reporter comes on to tell you that it turns out that semen DNA from her stepfather was discovered in her underwear. Well, what would you think? Well, I mean, that's pretty damning evidence right there, right? And I'm sure the report would make it seem that way. But scientists discovered again in 2016 that DNA from semen and vaginal secretions can migrate in the washing machine. In fact, in this specific study, DNA from both parents could be detected in their own children's underwear. And so this is the problem with a methodology that purports to be a science, but really isn't. It opens the door to unwarranted emotional manipulation, among many other things. And there's a couple of things I want to touch on real quick about that Lucas Anderson story, David. So you mentioned that he had a really good defense attorney. And she was able to pull his medical records and she found that he had actually been in the hospital at the time of this crime. I think this highlights so perfectly how narrow that line is that defendants' lives hang on. And what if his charge had been 50 years in prison instead of the death penalty? Would his attorney still have thought it appropriate to gather all his medical information to ask for leniency? Would such a basic fact about his alibi gone unnoticed? And would he have spent the rest of his life in jail? And it's worth noting here that part of the reason why Lucas didn't mention this, at least initially, was he was blackout drunk at the time. And the DNA evidence was so convincing that even he, after hearing that his DNA had been found on this case, was like, well, I don't remember what happened. I was drunk. I was blacked out. I was later picked up and woke up in a hospital, but I don't know when that happened. I guess it's possible that I could have done it. That's how convincing this evidence is. That when somebody who is an innocent man is themselves convinced that they might have committed a crime because of this DNA evidence, well, that has huge potential for this emotional abuse. 
And if he had spent the rest of his life in jail, it would have been a direct result of technology that has gotten better. Well, that's actually one of the paradoxic things of this forensic element here, that DNA testing has only improved. Unlike a lot of these other forensic science, quote, techniques that we've realized with time are worse and worse. Well, DNA sequencing, the process to do that, it's gotten both more accurate and faster. But in a weird way, this has almost made things worse. So the fact that we can get DNA results with smaller and smaller samples means that we can pull DNA from almost anything. As we mentioned with this DNA transfer, we're constantly shedding it. So now police will come into a crime scene and swab literally everything in the hopes that, well, some of it will have the suspect's DNA on it. They'll sample the victim's DNA, they'll sample people who are normally around their DNA, try and subtract that from this final calculation. But in that same report that we talked about earlier for the president's office, they looked at DNA science and they said, you know what, this is the one area where forensic science is actually just that science, where it's accurate. But they qualify that statement and they say single source DNA is really good. That means if I come in, I bleed on somewhere, we take a sample of this blood. If there's a large amount of semen or other body fluids, we test that. And it's very obvious that this is from the suspect. It's easy to tell. But as soon as DNA starts being mixed in with other ones, where there's, in their example, three people, the suspect and two other strangers, well, it becomes much harder to tell. It introduces an error rate as high as 20% with just three people there. And as we've mentioned, the DNA that can be sequenced by this might be 5, 10, 20 people. And trying to pull a signal out of that noise becomes very difficult, if not impossible, and switches this science from one of accuracy, reliability, and just a matter of matching, to making, once again, a leap of faith. Trying to tease a signal out of this noise and saying, well, it looks like it matches up, becomes no different than trying to match fingerprints up. And at that point, we've left the reliability of DNA and entered into this quasi-subjectivity field. And that's no good when we're getting convictions on because we need consistency, we need something we can rely on, because ultimately this is a field that people's lives hang in balance. And making a leap of faith just isn't enough. Well, you know, David, I wonder if this DNA testing wasn't the only bad science going on in this Lucas Anderson case. The part where they identify a connection between him, this person he met in jail a year earlier, and the fact that this person had driven through this area a few days before the crime, Reminds me of what we've talked about when it comes to predictive policing and this science, quote unquote, of mapping out social networks so that you can predict who's a criminal, who's likely of committing a crime. I think this really highlights the problem with that and how misleading it is and how relying on that is faulty. If you're throwing everybody in jail and you're keeping tabs on everybody, especially if you're talking about people within a certain demographic and geographic area, Well, of course, these people are going to have small degrees of separation and you're going to be able to make connections between these people. But that doesn't mean that they're guilty of a crime. But let's move on. We've been looking at some of these cases that have occurred in the past and some of the screw ups in them. Let's look at something that has happened just recently, grabbing headlines in April of this year. The East Area Rapist, the Golden State Killer the original Night Stalker. These are all one and the same. Somebody, a suspect, believed to have killed 12 people, raped at least 51, and burglarized hundreds of homes from 1974 through May 1986 along the length of California. Well, news recently broke that police had found a break in the case and arrested a man who they believe is the original Night Stalker. And so, in a case that's been cold like this, with no breaks for over 20 years, the question is, well, what changed? What led to this break? And that answer, of course, is DNA. 
But what they did is they took an old DNA sample, one of these samples that they suspect came from the killer, which, as we've kind of pointed out, we already have some doubt in that area. Well, they took this sample and they sent it into a genealogy website. Yeah, one of these websites that purports like, oh, yeah, it's a Mother's Day deal for $100. We'll you spin a tube, send it in, and we will tell you your ancestry. We'll tell you what relatives you didn't know you had. And to give you a report that tells you, you know, how much Neanderthal DNA you have, like something that's supposed to be all in good fun. Maybe you learn a little bit about yourself. Uh, hopefully you don't find out you have a secret long lost sibling. But that's the way these services are pitched. But this time, a cop sent in this data. They didn't say that this was like, oh, we're sending in murder case. They set up a fake account. They said, I'm spitting in this tube. This is my DNA. And they sent this in to get sequenced. The service, not knowing any better, not knowing this was part of a criminal investigation, they, of course, sequenced the DNA sent back the ancestry report, but also, and here's the important part, they send you a list of likely relatives. And they say, oh, it turns out you have a first cousin, a second cousin, third cousin once removed. And a likelihood of how much this is true gives their name, how much of your DNA matches theirs, and you can reach out to them on this website if you want. Well, this is exactly what the cops were looking for. When they sent in this test and they got the results back, they hit a match. They found that this mystery person who they've been chasing for decades has a genetic relative. And from there, they found that person's name, and that gave them a very small pool of people to look into. And of course, one of them matched up in places that they lived at the time, and cops began to tail them. They followed this person around for a couple of weeks, and eventually found a chance to grab a DNA sample from a cup or something left behind at a store. They took this, ran it through their own crime lab DNA, and confirmed that it matched with that sample taken from a crime scene decades before, using conventional police work. The samples matched, the news broke, they arrested their man, and we all rejoice at this former cop, this Golden State killer, who is now currently in jail awaiting trial for these crimes. But this brings into a lot of questions. So we already have a lot of privacy issues with these genetic testing websites, but the fact that they're now being used, and this didn't seem to be like some new technique, but is becoming part of standard procedure for police detectives who don't have a large non-criminal DNA database, well, this becomes a very easy way to start finding names, to shrink down your suspect pool, and start figuring out why this suspect name who you now have committed a crime, rather than old conventional methods of saying, well, who did this? How did they do this? Let's look at that and narrow it down from there. They just say, oh, we have a name. Let's figure out how this person committed this crime. And that's a seismic shift. It is a seismic shift, and it's the exact type of backwards detective work that got Lucas Anderson arrested in the first place. It is the very definition of confirmation bias. It's not how, like you said, conventional detective work would have been carried out. In this case, you're starting with an identifier and then build a narrative and find evidence that will confirm that this suspect is the person that committed this crime. It leaves wide open the gate for biased detective work for glossing over evidence that would otherwise prove this person innocent, like that night in the hospital for Lucas Anderson. And I mean, beyond that, I mean, knowing what we know now about how DNA can transfer and about how crime scenes are contaminated and what we're going to talk about soon, which is the general disorder going on in crime labs, are we confident that, number one, that this DNA taken from a crime scene 40 years ago wasn't the result of contamination or secondary transfer? And number two, are we confident that it has been perfectly preserved for that long in a crime lab without any tampering or any errors that would otherwise affect it? 
And those are excellent questions to ask. I mean, in this case, yes, it does look pretty good, at least from the evidence that's been revealed to us, the public. But going forward, this is something we need to remember, and especially as juries, as, as members of the public that participate in this judicial process, these are questions we need to constantly be asking ourselves. But that's the conversation for later on in this episode. And one other angle to this, David, that kind of stuck out to me is that news outlets have been reporting the suspect's full name, his picture, they've identified him as a suspect in mass murders and rapes. And I've even seen video reports where they have gone out to the neighborhood where he has lived and interviewed all his neighbors about how he acted, what he did. It's even worse. So, so this media reporting started decades ago with a mysterious killer who apparently kicked off this murder rampage because of a scorned fiance, somebody who had left him and made him so angry at the world that he went out and did this. Well, now that they knew who this man allegedly is, well, they went and tracked down his former fiance. They found this woman, this poor woman. She's happily married. She has a job and she left this life behind her, not knowing obviously that he went on to become a murderer, allegedly. But they, they published her full name, everything about her life, her photo, and put it online and like basically blamed her for all this killing that this guy did, which was really a crazy, shocking thing. But I mean, I guess that's what happens in this clickbait time when, when everyone is rushing to report on this story, to try and get the clicks from it. Well, whoever can scoop a story like this, as shitty and as, as unethical as that would be, especially in, in bringing this woman to something that she clearly wants nothing to do with. And even blaming her a little bit, well, I guess that's well within uh, the media's reach for anything for a dollar. Maybe we should question whether it should be legal to broadcast people's names in this media environment that jumps to conclusions, makes assumptions, and relishes this emotional sensationalism, which can end up costing people's lives. But to understand why this forensics is a bunch of bad and fake and erroneous science, and to understand why people's lives are allowed to be totally ruined as a result, we need to look at how the whole field is broken and full of perverse incentives. And that starts with the crime labs. In 1994, a lab supervisor for the FBI's crime lab submitted an internal report criticizing rampant misconduct, including altering evidence and giving false testimony. The FBI did nothing. And when this whistleblower Frederick Whitehurst went to the Department of Justice to complain. The FBI fired him and attacked his reputation. The fight went on, and eight years later, in 2012, the DOJ agreed to review some of the cases. They dragged their feet in examining only 500 as of 2015, but of all the cases that had FBI examiners testify for prosecutors, 96% of them gave erroneous statements. And of the cases in which somebody was sentenced to death, 94% of those cases had errors. But it doesn't just end there. In 2015, the FBI and the Justice Department made headlines when they admitted that for almost 30 years, examiners at the FBI's Microscopic Hair Comparison Laboratory, which we already had talked about above, had provided flawed testimony that favored prosecutors in hundreds of trials. Officials had known they were potentially sending innocent people to prison on unreliable evidence, but still presented the evidence as if it were an undeniable science. And while many of these FBI cases are currently being reviewed, there is no accountability or plans to review cases of the thousands of technicians that the FBI from this department trained in hair examination and sent out to local and state laboratories. We will never know the scope of innocent people convicted of crime because of this one FBI department alone. And David, you mentioned that the FBI admitted to at least 30 years 
of examiners at the microscopic hair department providing flawed testimony. Well, these officials had known they were potentially sending innocent people to prison on unreliable evidence, but still presented the evidence as if it were an undeniable science. And these people didn't just go to prison. In just the hundreds of cases that were reviewed by the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers and in partnership with the Innocence Project, over 30 people had been sentenced to death based on flawed microscopic hair analysis. This is really the story of two problems. The unreliability of the science, which we've covered a bit, and the perverse incentives to convict people of crimes that led prosecutors and FBI, quote, experts to lie about the science. In 90% of the cases reviewed, officials had made claims of near certain and exact matches for hair samples when there simply was no scientific basis for those claims. And although this announcement the FBI made regarding 30 years of flawed testimony for hair analysis is shocking, we have known crime labs and the work they do is seriously flawed for way longer than that. We mentioned earlier about that nationwide study carried out in the 70s that found serious problems in crime labs, and no national review has ever been carried out since. And as we'll see, not much since then has changed. And part of the reason nothing has changed is that crime labs have no incentive to audit their methods, and almost all of them answer to prosecutors. So let's examine some specific crime lab atrocities that have made the news in recent years. A drug analysis lab was shut down in 2012 in Boston, Massachusetts, after it was discovered that one of the chemists had tampered with tens of thousands of drug samples and crime scene evidence over about 10 years. She pled guilty to obstruction of justice, perjury, and tampering with evidence. Over her tenure, she handled around 60,000 drug samples, a majority of which were tampered with everything from forged signatures to mixing samples so that clean evidence would test positive for drugs. In many cases, she would simply eyeball a sample and claim it tested positive for a drug like cocaine without even bothering to check, simply because she wanted to please the prosecutor. And we have to point out that these examiners, a lot of them go to court to testify as expert witnesses, and this chemist was one of those people. She would go to court, she would testify about the validity of her testing, and she was even charged in 2009 for lying about having a master's degree when she didn't. Yeah, in fact, she was even testifying in court while under investigation for tampering with these drug samples. That's how crazy the system is. Yeah, well, she was sentenced in 2013 to three to five years in prison for, quote, shaking the criminal justice system to its core, end quote. That's what the judge said. She was released in 2016. Now, like Daniel mentioned, this really shook the criminal justice system and a handful of other people lost their jobs as a result because although she's described as, quote, rogue chemist, she only succeeded due to a lack of standards. Her supervisor and her colleagues had suspicions about her work, but did not do anything. The lab itself in which she worked was in disarray, and prosecutors had private email communications with her calling into questions the ethics of authorities sharing personal details with those paid to test the very evidence they use to lock people up. Yeah, does it make sense, David, for lab scientists and prosecutors to know each other? And to really highlight the extent to which these prosecutors and authorities rely on individual chemists and and analysts, there was a bodily fluid scientist that worked for West Virginia Crime Lab who went on trial in 2001 for falsifying evidence over a decade. Yet, when he was fired from that lab and he moved to Texas 
to a new lab where he continued his work, well, officials from West Virginia began shipping him samples personally because he delivered the results they wanted, not the results that were based on real science. And back to this Boston crime lab case, the ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Union, estimated that 40,000 convictions were a direct result of this one lab scientist's fraudulent work. And in 2016, the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court agreed to consider what to do about 24,000 of them. They issued a ruling in April 2017 that 21,587 cases were to be dismissed and the people currently in prison to be released. But clearly, for that many people to be convicted off of fraudulent evidence, this goes well beyond a single individual, a single chemist gone rogue. There's a larger systemic issue going on. In 2013, consultants hired to examine the quality of the crime lab for the St. Paul Police, which oversaw the capital city of Minnesota, discovered atrocious errors in just about every lab procedure. Equipment was not kept clean. Technicians didn't keep documentation in order. Some of them even used Wikipedia as a quote-unquote technical reference. And areas where DNA was tested were not clean, and federal safety and health standards were violated. They concluded that at least 40% of all fingerprint tests were seriously deficient. And not surprisingly, drug cases reviewed were potentially contaminated. Honestly, this report from these consultants, it kind of reads a little bit funny in certain places, David. It really makes these employees at the lab sound like chickens running around with their heads cut off. The consultants couldn't even figure out how their fingerprint division worked. There were no standard procedures at all, and they couldn't even figure out what was going on. Uh, Likely, the technicians didn't know either. It's exactly the kind of people I want, determining who goes to jail for life and potentially uh, capital punishment as well. But this story isn't limited to just these couple of crime labs. It takes place all over the country constantly. The crime lab for the Detroit police was shut down in 2008 after similar problems were discovered. 10% of cases reviewed from this crime lab had serious errors and likely led to wrongful convictions. In North Carolina, retired FBI agents investigated the State Bureau of Investigation crime lab after a man that spent 16 years in prison was released after finding that the blood evidence that was used to convict him, what do you think, Daniel? Um, Wasn't tested properly, got mixed up with something, contaminated? um, I'm guessing that the blood that they thought was his actually came from a dog. That's close, but actually the blood evidence used to convict him wasn't even blood at all. What was it, like cranberry juice or something? Probably like red (laughs) Kool-Aid. This is the same story that's played out over and over everywhere we look. Because the goal is to get convictions not to do good science. These crime labs, they answer to the officials who benefit from convicting people. In that State Bureau of Investigation crime lab, David, they found a training manual that technicians had to read, which told them how they were supposed to perform in court so that they could be more credible. And the training manual actually refers to the experts that defense attorneys hire as, quote, defense whores, end quote. Now, how's that for professionalism in the justice system? It's about what I would expect. Not to mention being unbiased, right? Yes. So the question becomes, if we have this consistent problem across crime labs in every state and even at the Federal Bureau of Investigation, the world's premier crime lab and arbiter of all things forensic science, well, what is causing this problem? What perverse incentives are encouraging this system that makes this rampant fraud, really, for lack of a better word, so ubiquitous? 
Well, one of the reasons, David, is money. So in many jurisdictions, these crime labs, they receive bonus payments for every conviction that police get based on the evidence that they test. So it's very clear to see in a situation like that, the prosecutor obviously wants convictions because that's their job. The detectives who are working on the case and who are communicating directly with these crime lab analysts, they want convictions because that helps their career. And the crime lab technician wants a conviction because that's how they get paid. There is no incentive at any point along this to do pure science and to be unbiased in the treatment of these suspects, which, by the way, are usually poor, minority, and they can't afford a good defense. We have to stop for a second right there, because any system that decides that a responsible way of rewarding crime labs is to pay them for convictions or pay them solely on convictions is so clearly broken that we should just throw the whole thing out. What legislative body, what judicial body can look at this and say, yeah, this is a good system when it's so obviously biased. It's completely ridiculous. And maybe it's because we don't realize this happens because the funding happens behind closed doors. It's not in the public light. We don't think about it because our perception of forensics is what we see on television, on CSI and CIS, that this just isn't in our mind. It never even occurs to us. We see courts as a place where truth is found. Where people come together, we have a huge body of laws and traditions that are supposed to eke out the truth when that truth is difficult to find. And forensics is an important component of that. But when we can see at the very basic level that the incentives behind the system are so broken and so clearly biased that it calls into question the entire system. And the judicial system is one of the most important foundations of what a state is in general. Maybe I'm getting ahead of myself here, but one of the components of a state is that it has a monopoly on violence. And maybe that sounds weird at first, and we think of that mostly in terms of the military and what they can do, but it's also in its law and order. Police can kill. They can lock you up, because violence isn't just necessarily about beating you, but it's also about denying you rights or freedoms. And we trust this execution of violence or restrictions of rights because we trust the system that builds it, because it's built supposedly on laws that have been vetted, that have been introduced by a process that we trust and participate in through our democratic procedures. And then these laws are enforced by a judicial system that has checks and balances between prosecutors, defense attorneys, and the people investigating these crimes, all trying to do what's best, trying to eke out the truth, and trying to prove beyond any reasonable doubt that what we say somebody did is in fact what they did. And then once that is acknowledged, once we know that that's true, then we can punish that person without the worries of the misapplication of violence. But if we call into question the motivations and the actions of the people within this judicial system, whether through bad science, whether through fraud, whether through intentionally lying in the courtroom, well, that brings into question the entire application of this violence, of the fact that we as a state, we as a people, as part of a state, have undoubtedly killed, locked up, and punished people who are innocent, who have done nothing wrong solely because some people wanted to get convictions to get ahead, to advance their career, to make some money based on these conviction payments. And that calls into question the entire system itself. How can we fix something that the very motivations behind are broken? Well, maybe I'm getting ahead of myself. Well, David, you did mention that for a system that is so important, such as the justice system in this country, we should feel that we can trust the laws. So let's look at the existence of laws that keep these crime labs in check. And what we find is that there are no laws. These crime labs are run by anywhere from a state authority to a private company. 
there are no regulations or laws to regulate them. And as we've mentioned, the scientists at these crime labs have direct relationships with police and prosecutors. In terms of accreditation, the only recognized accreditation board in the U.S., which isn't even a requirement to be a part of, well, it's a private organization which labs can pay to become accredited, and that will boost their quote-unquote legitimacy. If that's not bad enough, something that might surprise you in forensic science is that there are very few actual scientists in the field. There is no law that requires the people that run these crime labs or even the technicians themselves to have a basic scientific background. The majority of people involved in these crime labs, which at this point maybe we should just call businesses, are business people and former police officers. One criminologist estimates that if you were to require all these crime labs to be run by someone with a basic scientific education, well, 60 to 70% of all of them would have to be shut down immediately. And again, that's just people running the crime labs. In terms of the scientists actually performing these tests, well, that number is even lower. So these are the same people that are saying without any doubt these matches are perfect or that it's likely that this person is whatever and we need to convict them that have no scientific training. And it's no wonder that so many of these labs, when they're actually investigated and looked at by these boards, by these independent review groups, that they fail just about every possible test, that their matches are at best 50% accurate in even basic things like fingerprinting. And some of these, like we've mentioned, can't even get things like blood typing right, which is a very basic test that we know can we can do accurately for decades at this point. And that review board that acts as an accreditation body for these labs, well, they don't even keep track of how many labs end up on suspension or being punished by the board for not meeting up with this. And the fact that they don't keep track of these numbers should be indicative of how big of a problem this is. They just admit that, yes, this happens, it happens a fair amount, but we don't know because we don't keep track. And at that point, we realize that this review board isn't even about actually making sure there are some sort of standards, but instead about rubber stamping these businesses, these labs, in order to make them seem more professional than they are. And it turned this into an industry that gets money from these convictions. And we mentioned how few scientists are actually involved in these labs. Well, that same accreditation board has no requirement that the people actually working in the lab doing these tests have any sort of scientific training at all. That means you could go in, have no experience, maybe just a high school education, come in and get a job at one of these places and just follow a manual and hope that you're doing this test correctly. And as we've already established, many times these manuals or these standards that the labs establish aren't accurate or good or even exist at all. David, maybe this isn't the place to bring this up, but I did mention at the beginning of the show how forensics as a field didn't evolve out of the scientific method, but is really just created to fit this need of making convictions. And there was one methodology that didn't get mentioned in that White House report that was kind of funny. I really wanted to bring it up. And this is a case where the defendant actually won, but it also highlights how important and how hard it is to build a good defense against some of these made-up methodologies. So as we've pointed out in a lot of cases, this forensic evidence is the only physical evidence that links defendants to crimes. These can override alibis, eyewitness accounts, and other conventional counter evidence. And defense attorneys, which are usually just court appointed and don't have a lot of incentive to do a good job, well, they don't have the resources to bring their own forensic experts or their own scientists to refute some of these claims. And if a jury is presented with an official expert backed by some three letter American institution, 
who says, quote, in all my experience, I can say with 100% accuracy that this odor is the smell of a human body decomposing, end quote. <laughs> well, how can a defense attorney combat this? So you're saying there's forensic smell science, quote, science. Yeah, this is, the, this is the one I wanted to bring up. It was in this Casey Anthony trial, this woman who was suspected in the death of her child. The prosecutor put tons of forensic experts on the stand to show with convincing evidence that she was guilty. And a lot of it was just made up. In fact, one of the more important expert witnesses was an alleged expert on smellology. Smellology. That's the actual name. Hey, David. Look, you can call it whatever you want. I think that's the point. And so what they did is the prosecutors, they isolated an odor from the trunk of Casey Anthony's car. They sealed it in a can and then had the examiner, this expert in smells and odors, sniff it. And this examiner concluded with absolute scientific certainty that the odor came from a decaying human body. Now, what was the scientific basis of his claim? Well, he had a lot of experience smelling dead bodies. I don't even know what, how to react to this. Well, luckily in this case, she was found not guilty. But the only reason she walked is because her defense attorney was able to raise enough money by selling photos to a news giant that could then criticize her on national television, and they used that money to pay for a good defense. Otherwise, she would have had no chance against the testimony of these made-up experts. And it's not just the experts in the courtrooms that are part of the problem, but the actual police officers themselves. I want to introduce you to a term called test-a-lying, which is one of my favorite clever little journalistic things that somebody came up with along the way. But this is the practice, the blatant practice, I should say, of police officers and these technical experts coming into a courtroom and just making stuff up. The New York Times just ran a big report here on test-a-lying cases in New York City, where it's common knowledge and practice that police officers will come in and just totally make up stories. One of the examples they gave is this police officer came into an apartment building, knocked on a door, and a woman answered it. She opened the door, and she was standing there with a large bag of laundry. The police officer, who was looking for a firearm, questioned her. She set down the bag, and as she did so, it sort of tapped his foot. He felt something metallic, and it hit the ground and made a loud metallic noise. He said, hmm, I wonder what that is. It was enough suspicion for him to look into this bag, found a weapon, Ruger 9mm, and then came into the apartment, searched her, arrested her, and eventually she found her way to trial. And this is the testimony that the officer gave in court under oath. And traditionally, this would just end up being her word against the officer's. And in almost every case, the jury is obviously going to side with the officer, this arbiter of peace, the hand of constrained violence for the state, who only executes it when they absolutely need to, and speaks with the force of law, right? Well, fortunately for this poor woman, there was a camera in the hallway who filmed this whole interaction. Not only was there no metallic noise in the laundry bag, but she wasn't even holding a laundry bag. She literally just walked up to the door, opened it, and the police immediately barged in and searched her room. The case was dropped, the court case was sealed by the court because it was so bad, and those officers that lied under oath in a court of law, well, nothing happened to them. Because this has become standard practice for police departments around the country, and has expanded from there to even involve these expert witness testimonies. Test-a-lying is so rampant that it's a central component of prosecution today, and both defense attorneys and prosecutors know it's happening, but there's very little they can do without direct video evidence that counters what these police officers claim actually occurred. And worse, the cases where this is exposed, most of the time these cases are immediately shut, sealed, and never revealed to the public, so getting a perspective of just how big of a problem this is, when the stars line up that we can actually demonstrate that a police officer is lying, 
which is rare enough already, well, it's very difficult for journalists and researchers to look at all this data to calculate how big of a problem this actually is. But all we know is that it's rampant. And one of these core components of the judicial system, which is the things that we keep coming back to, is called into doubt, cannot be trusted, and really breaks the judicial system as a whole. So what is all this ultimately? These forensic science, these officers giving these made-up testimony in court, well, it's theater for the jury, right? That's a good way to put it. It's not just in these courtrooms that this theater occurs, but also in the media. We saw that in the case of Casey Anthony. The media had her face, had her name on TV for weeks. They made her look like a killer. And at one point, they even called her a slut. Well, to be fair, Daniel, at least in theory, the juries on a case like that are supposed to be sealed from the media. They're not supposed to be watching anything. So these kind of reports can affect their ultimate decision. Just like in theory, all this evidence is supposed to be reliable. Right, in theory. And I mean, there are a lot of restrictions on them. They, they don't have access to news. They're, they're constrained in certain hotel rooms and stuff like that. But also before a trial starts, when the jury selection process is going on, you know, they're asked if they've seen anything about this story, supposedly, like say she was just arrested and is being charged. Do they watch the news? Do they see this? Anything that might make them biased. And so they look for the least up-to-date jurors, I guess, really, in this scenario to find people who are as potentially as unbiased as possible. But where that bias does happen is in the consumption of mass media that talks about forensic science in things like CSI and NCIS. And in fact, the cop drama is a mainstay of television. How many hit shows on network television are there about police officers? I mean, like dozens, right? Well, I know the show Cops isn't on anymore. At least I don't think it is. But I remember watching that as a kid. So there was Cops, right? Which is literally just a sort of predecessor to modern reality TV of like sort of made up intensified situations for the viewer's entertainment. But there's also a lot of drama things that revolve around forensic science. So it's got a lot in CSI, which has been on for almost two decades now. Uh, NCIS, which was the number one show on television for a lot of time and is specifically about forensic scientists. Person of Interest, Dexter, Dexter, The Good Wife, Blacklist, yeah, Bones, Castle, The Mentalist, Cold Case, uh, all the CSI spinoffs like CSI Las Vegas, Forensic Files. Well, those are just the specific TV dramas, but how often do we see similar scenes play out just on smaller cases in movies Mm -hmm. and other TVs that aren't explicitly about police work? Even in, in the podcast world, how much of podcast media is devoted to true crime? to how people committed crimes and ultimately were caught. Okay, so I'll, I'll admit there's a lot of drama surrounding cops, but what's your point, David? The point is, is that all this work is getting us in the mind of a police officer. And bear with me just for one second here, but we need to understand something first. The mind of a police officer. Right, so, so, so bear with me here. Empathy is a muscle. It's something we can practice. We get better at it when we use it. And an empathetic thing is watching a TV show about someone or reading a book about someone or a news story that puts you in somebody else's situation, that shows you their point of view, how they live their life, how they experience the world. Okay? All right. So, I mean, that's well known. This generates empathy. You automatically empathize with people who you've imagined being in their situation through this fiction. And, well, so much of our media is devoted to police officers, to police work, to cops, that we spend a lot of time imagining ourselves, sort of, as a police officer understanding how they think, what they do, why they're doing this, understanding the tragedies that occur in their life, how tough the police world is. The danger that they go through dealing with the scumbags of the earth. Exactly. and I mean, it's compelling fiction, it's compelling television, but ultimately it's just that. It's fiction, it's television. The worried wife at home wondering if her husband's going to come home safe today. The police officer on the last day of his work, right before retirement, that you just know that they're not going to make it out. 
Yeah, I mean, all these tropes, these ideas, and it's not, it's nothing new. This goes back decades to T.J. Booker before that, to the film noir detectives of the 30s. We are obsessed with police culture, thinking about police, thinking like this, and that has an effect on how we think about judicial systems and the law enforcement in general. When we come to court, as a jury, as somebody commenting on a case, we are automatically carrying with us all these thoughts we have about law enforcement media, about police, about forensic science. And in fact, this has become a huge problem in courtrooms that defense attorneys are struggling with and prosecutors take advantage of in that people think a lot of times that the things they see on CSI and NCIS are real. The shows might be based on some point on some sort of fact or nugget of truth, but it's exaggerated and intensified and turned into just a mockery hyperbole of what it actually is to be a police officer, what it actually is to do forensic science. And now when people on a jury hear DNA, they hear fingerprints as evidence, they instantly assume it's perfect because on these television shows, it is. Well, even more than that, I'm sure there's a lot of juries that expect there to be some kind of forensic evidence mm-hmm. and would feel uncomfortable sending someone to jail without that right. expectation of hard evidence. And this is absolutely true. It's a measurable effect. And it's something that has pressured these crime labs when we're talking about perverse incentives. Now, police departments, when they're acquiring all the evidence to push a case and providing it to the prosecutor, they are pressured to provide forensics evidence as well. Because without fingerprints, without DNA, it's a lot harder for prosecutors to get some sort of conviction. But fortunately, it's easier than ever to get that forensics evidence, but nobody calls into question how valid that evidence might be. And so these crime labs that are pressured to put out as much as possible that are working well beyond their means in their meager budgets, which we've already established, working for this conviction dollars instead, well, it's another broken system that makes all these problems that much worse. And beyond that, I mean, we're empathizing with these police officers, so when they get up on stand and tell us this lie, maybe we understand that it's not entirely true, that some things are established, that they fear for their life, that their job is tough. But how much of that is true? How much of that is fiction? How much do we ultimately feel for this police officer standing up there because of these lies we've been fed through fiction? I mean, I I went and looked up these numbers. You talk about police officers, you think about police work, you say, that's a dangerous job, yeah? It's dangerous. They deal with criminals, so, so obviously they're going to be at risk dealing with the most dangerous people in the country, in the world. I mean, if you want to push it that far, <laughs> sure. I mean, and I'm not saying it's not a safe job. There is danger there. But it's not even in the top 10 most dangerous jobs by deaths and in injuries. And again, as we talked about in the past, most of those deaths that do occur to police officers aren't any sort of somebody coming in and shooting them or stabbing them or, or however other way that somebody kills an officer, but just police officers getting into traffic accidents. Nursing, for example, which is something that we never think about as a dangerous job, it has higher incidence rates of both injuries and deaths. But who gets the sympathy? And that reason why the sympathy exists for police officers is in large part because of this empathy machine that the media and culture spit out from Sherlock Holmes to Olivia Benson on Law & Order. Well, it's funny you mentioned Sherlock Holmes because that's a fictional character that was using many of these forensic methods that we rely on today, like shoe print and hair analysis long before there were any real forensic crime labs established. Makes you wonder if some of these flawed sciences were just ideas made up by investigators trying to imitate the world's greatest fictional detective. Life imitating fiction, imitating life. So David, what can we do? Now this episode is actually very timely for me because as I'm finishing my notes up for this, I go to my mail, I open it up, And lo and behold, it's finally time for me to have my jury duty in Kings County, New York. Congratulations. 
Yes, uh, it's true. It's unfortunate. But I guess that's what we've been told is our civic duty. That's the quote that's always used. But it actually works really well in the context of this show, because for most of us and most of the things we talk about on this show, there's very little we can really individually do. But at least here in the United States, all of us eventually will serve jury duty. Maybe we get put on a court case. Maybe we don't. Maybe it's civil. Maybe it's criminal, whatever. But the odds are at some point in your life, you will sit in on a trial. And ultimately, as much as we like to think that the judicial system is about judges, about lawyers, about high-priced defense attorneys, about victims, about suspects, really in the end, the people that it's about are the jurors. Everyone in a court case is trying to convince a juror to say guilty or not guilty. And the power to convict or to acquit rests with us, regular citizens. And as citizens, when we have the conversations in these cases, when we discuss the validity and legitimacy of these forensic science pieces of evidence, well, knowing the things that we know, knowing how poor some of these tests can be, we can call into question what I'm sure many of our fellow jurors will believe is irrefutable evidence. We can inform them that, oh no, 1 in 18 fingerprint tests are wrong. We can teach them about DNA transfer. That in fact, a lot of DNA isn't just reading out and it's a perfect match, but instead loosely lining up lines trying to make them match on DNA printouts. That it's an exact science most of the time. And to call it a science might even be a stretch. We can remind them that a police officer's word is no better than anyone else's. And in fact, might be in more question because for him or her, there's no consequence for lying. They have a motivation to get a conviction, to put somebody in bars, in order to advance their career. And even more, here in the United States, we have the power of a jury veto. If you ever want to get out of jury duty, walk up and just start talking about jury nullification and they'll kick you out of a courtroom so fast you won't even know what happened to you. <laughs> but this is a long-held, beloved right of citizens. This was used to dramatic effect during Prohibition. And the idea is that if the people of a jury disagree with the law, in that case, uh, the law of Prohibition, maybe today, marijuana convictions, a law that you believe is unjust, that shouldn't be true, you as the jury can come together and say, we won't convict. We acquit this person. Even though the evidence lines up, we think that they actually did it. We don't think this law is just. So we're going to vote to acquit, to let them go. This is a power that we all have. This is one of the major things that got prohibition removed. It also has a bit of a dirty history, too. It was used a lot in the South in order to free white people who were being convicted for killing blacks. But the power today remains to reset this balance because most of the people in criminal cases are minorities. And we, as jurors, can inform our fellow jurors that this is a chance we have to do our little bit to fix this broken judicial system, to fix law enforcement, in order to take a little bit of our power back from the hands that took it from us. That's a big opportunity for us as individuals, David. But that is only when these things actually go to court and not a plea bargain, which is what actually ends up happening most of the time. And that brings us to thinking about how these systems and these incentives ultimately create the evil that we see going on. Don't get me started on plea bargains, Daniel. I mean, that can and probably will be its own show. It's such a horrible, broken, just totally fucked up system. It's unbelievable. Can't wait to get into that with you, David. But when we think about how this evil plays out in the world, we have to look at it from the system's point of view. Because let's take the case of that analyst in the crime lab that resulted in up to 40,000 convictions that were based on faulty evidence. Well, why did she do it? Many people that have looked at her situation conclude that the reason why her work was fraudulent, why she tampered with evidence was for one reason, and that was esteem and respect. She wanted to be liked by the authorities that depended on her work. 
And on an individual level, isn't the desire to be liked ultimately part of being human? I mean, in her case, sure, she took it to the extreme, but we're talking about a natural human trait in a lot of people. And so does that make her as an individual evil? Maybe, maybe not. But what definitely is evil is the system that was able to exploit that trait in her and exploded out to tens of thousands of cases that resulted in the wrongful conviction of thousands of people. That was the evil. It resulted from a system, a system that exploited a human trait. And so in order to fix this problem, we don't need to trade out individuals within the system. We need to fundamentally change that system. And whether that involves severing that connection between authorities and the crime lab analysts testing their evidence, or providing some kind of regulatory framework for these crime labs so that they're standardized and so that they're forced to employ people with actual scientific education. Those are things we can look at, but ultimately it has to be a systems fix. That's right, Daniel. There's a big propensity in this critiquing of the law enforcement system or the judicial process that it's just bad actors, that they're these rogue agents out there who are doing things wrong, but in general that the system overall is perfect and built on such tradition that nothing could possibly be broken in it because there's so many checks and balances, right? Well, I think that's a scapegoat that a lot of media and and, and journalists use because they're hesitant to critique law and order. Because once you do that, you bring into question so many things. Again, that monopoly on state violence, if we can't trust the state in executing that, which maybe we shouldn't anyway, looking at some of the the military, the prison industrial complex, which again, can be its own standalone things, which I don't want to get into right now. But this process, when you start bringing into question the very elements of order, for a lot of people, that's what this is, you start getting much bigger questions than just broken crime labs. And let's also not ignore, Daniel, the economic incentives too. So you say that maybe it was because uh, in this particular example of Annie Dukin, this out of control lab technician, well, ultimately she wanted to be liked. But why is it that to be liked, she had to go through as much work as possible to be the most efficient lab tech? And of course, the answer to that is economics. The lab only gets paid on the samples that they process. So whoever makes the most money for the lab is most liked by the managers, by the administration of that lab. And so, yes, she was trying to just appeal to these people to be liked, to be respected. But ultimately, that respect was because she made the lab more money. That's a fantastic point. Because I guess if the standards had been not who's getting the most convictions, but who's providing the most accurate work, who has the cleanest station, who follows the procedures that we've now set in place the best and the most thoroughly, well, that same innate quality in her that made her work super hard to please the people that she worked for, well, now it would have been channeled into something positive and something that would have resulted in good science. Okay. So, I mean, these were a lot of very amorphous answers for what can we do, but there are a couple specific things that can be done at a systems level until we have larger fixes to rebuild the system. And one is separating these crime labs out from law enforcement agencies and also not running them as businesses. An independent state-run organization is probably the best way to do this that independently audits and keeps a standard for each of these crime labs and ensures that hiring standards and then also methodologies in the lab are maintained and done at a high level that you would expect a quote-unquote lab to be doing. Of course, that's going to cost money, and that money cannot come from convictions. It needs to be provided without question, without based on any sort of limits or trials that have ended in convictions or anything else, no strings attached. This is the money it costs to process something. That's how much it costs. And that money needs to come from somewhere, and, and I'm sure we can dig it up for something as important as being able to trust our law and order system. 
Beyond that, we need to spend money on researching some of these forensic techniques. DNA transfer research is not done in the United States. There are labs working on it in the European Union and other places, but there is no funding for this research in the U.S. And something that's as important as it is, a DNA in getting those convictions, we need to be putting money in this to better understanding how we can accidentally end up with DNA from strangers ending up in crime scenes. That's so important to being able to trust DNA and the fact that we're not looking into it, I think really speaks volumes about some of these problems. It's a tall order, David, but it is something that needs to be done. It is a tall order because researchers have been denied funding for doing studies on the error rates of some of these forensic methodologies in closed cases. So I guess before we can even fund decent studies, we have to remove the stigma from doing so in the first place. And there's a lot of other things that we can do for police officers, for punishment in general, but those are well outside the scope of the show and things that we'll explore in the future. It's a tall order, but I think if you want to be able to trust the state, trust these convictions, trust crimes and punishment, these are things that we absolutely have to get started on immediately. And of course, we should block and fight any attempt by authorities to make it easier for them to collect forensic evidence that is not strictly tied to a crime, like some law departments that have tried to implement stop and spit programs in recent years which involves stopping innocent kids and other people on the streets, forcing them to give up their saliva for the purpose of building DNA databases. The privacy implications of this are enormous, much less the targeting problems of, as we've seen with Stop and Frisk, probably targeting mostly minorities. The ability not to even be able to just walk down the street without being accosted by a police officer asking you for a biological tissue sample uh, seems to me like it should be pretty apparent to anybody, but... I don't want to live in a police state where I'm expected to spit in a tube on command, and I'm sure the rest of you don't either. So as we move forward into a world where our DNA is tracked, cataloged, and recorded, we need to constantly be thinking about the privacy implications of this and what it means for us to no longer have control over our own biological code. David, that's a lot to think about. It is, Daniel. And if you want to think about it some more and read some of these sources, including that long report for the presidential office, as well as many other studies on forensic science, or read a full transcript of this episode, you can do all of that on our website at ashesashes.org. A lot of time and research goes into making these shows possible. And we will never use ads to support this show. And we will never purchase ads, as effective as that might be, to crowd your news feeds. So if you like it and would like us to keep going, you can support us by sharing us with a friend and giving us a review. Also, we have an email address. It's contact at ashesashes.org. And we encourage you to send us your thoughts, positive or negative. We'll read it. You can also find us on your favorite social media network at Ashes Ashes Cast. We've got an exciting show coming up next week. We're going to be turning the temperature up on all of you, and we hope you'll join us. Until then. This is Ashes Ashes. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.